Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine podcast series. This is Alatar Shujin, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut Internal Medicine Residency. A quick disclaimer before we begin, this podcast is meant for educational purposes only and should not be taken as a medical advice. Today, we will be talking about outpatient management of COVID-19, and it is my pleasure to tell you that we have a very special guest with us today. It is residents' favorite infectious disease attending, Dr. Paul Anthony. Dr. Anthony completed his residency at St. Vincent's Medical Center and his infectious disease fellowship at the University of Connecticut. He serves as Assistant Director of the Occupational Health at Hartford Healthcare and as an Assistant Director for Infectious Disease at Hartford Hospital Community Health and Adult Primary Care Clinic. He works a lot with residents, and he's been a great teacher to our residents throughout our training. Without further ado, I'll hand it over to Dr. Anthony to bring us up to speed on the outpatient management of COVID-19. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here, Ella. Of course. Pleasure to have you. To help guide the discussion, I prepared a few questions that I was hoping you can help us answer. We can start with your assessment of the state of pandemic at present and how do you think the virus has changed since the beginning of the pandemic? Great question. So the pandemic continues despite what others may think. COVID-19 has not gotten the message that the pandemic is over. It continues to evolve. We are at the tail end of a surge right now and prevalence in Connecticut is just under 10% for the first time in weeks now. And the virus continued to have variants. We met Delta last year, then Omicron in December, and Omicron BA2 shortly after. And what the message here is the more viral replication that happened, the more likely you would have variants, and the more likely this will continue to happen. We've seen a lot of COVID in the past two years, definitely. Two terms that I think residents have been using interchangeably is quarantine and isolation. Can you help us understand the difference between the two? Yeah, there's a key difference there is the term quarantine should only be used in context of prevention. So that means that if someone is staying away from others as a prevention after they've had an exposure to COVID-19, but they haven't developed any symptoms yet. Whereas the term isolation is a term you use when someone has symptoms or if someone has diagnosed COVID-19, because some patients with COVID-19 may not have symptoms. Dr. Anthony, what are the most recent recommendations on the duration of quarantine? So quarantines for folks who are not up to date with the COVID-19 vaccination is at least five days after an exposure. All right. And if a patient is fully vaccinated, do they still need to quarantine? No. If someone is fully vaccinated with their COVID-19 vaccine, they don't need to quarantine as long as they remain asymptomatic as before. One more thing I'll mention too is if someone had COVID-19 confirmed within the last three months and they don't have symptoms, they don't need to quarantine either. Thank you for clarifying that. With regards to counseling patients on what symptoms to watch out for, what do you usually tell your patients who test positive? Yeah, so I tell patients you may experience fevers, chills, cough, shortness of breath, feeling lousy, tired, body aches, sore throat, congestions, runny nose, all those things like things to watch for though shortness of breath. That's going to be the key difference between you being at home versus you being in a hospital bed. Makes sense. I think throughout pandemic, we have been most worried about our patients who are at high risk. And I know that definition varied over the past two years. Can you just tell us a little bit more about who do we consider high risk right now? Yeah, great question. So high risk would be folks who are over 60, 65. That's where a lot of death happens. 
81% of COVID deaths or in the group of people who are over 65. Then you get like folks who are immunosuppressed, so your AIDS patients, CD4 under 200. You have your patients on immunosuppressive therapy, so if someone will transplant, someone with some monoclonal antibodies, someone on high-dose steroids, and you have people with chronic organ disease, so chronic kidney disease, chronic lung disease, chronic liver disease, patients with cancer and chemotherapy, but also special mention to two groups, diabetics and patients who are obese. Those are also very high risk for bad things with COVID. Thank you for that. Now that we have some outpatient therapies available to treat COVID-19, I was looking to ask you a bit more about what therapies are available and what patients qualify for treatment. Yeah, so I'll tell about the criteria first and then we'll go into the therapy. So the criteria is, is basically patients who are at high risk for severe COVID and obviously they need to have COVID-19 that's diagnosed. Now, in terms of like what are the therapies available, I start with like the monoclonal antibody. So right now we use one called Bictilozumab, which is an IV infusion of antibodies to COVID-19 that has been shown to decrease the likelihood of complications. The only limiting factor to that is that it's an IV infusion, so that requires a trip to an infusion center where obviously you're not going to do it where you're infusing other cancer patients. It has to be separate because those patients are having COVID-19. So one time those, you monitor the patient for an hour after the infusion, everything's fine, they go away, they go home. On the flip side, there are oral options now for COVID and think of them as almost in the same mix of like your Tamiflu for flu, but for COVID now. So one option is called Molnupiravir and the other one is, uh, not going to try to pronounce the generic name, it's called Paxlovid. Paxlovid is a combination of the antiviral agent and of ritonavir, which you're familiar with in the HIV world, ritonavir is there to boost, basically to make the other drug increase the serum level and make it last longer. And with that comes problem that we'll talk about in a short while. So those medications are effective if taken within the first five days of symptom onset. So that's why it's so important to start early. And then uh, for Paxlovid, it's three tablets. If someone has normal renal function, that they'll take twice a day for five days. The idea is to try to diminish the, the viral replication so the person can feel better sooner. A couple of things to watch for. Someone's on Paxlovid, obviously it's going to be diarrhea because of the ritonavir. Most importantly, it's going to be drug-drug interactions, and there are going to be medications with which it's contraindicated because of the ritonavir effect that's going to boost things. Classic example would be if someone is on statin, you would have to stop it for five days to decrease the risk of muscle myopathy from the statin. And if someone is on the new anticoagulants, because you don't want to over-anticoagulate them, it might be very difficult to use Paxlovid in that patient population. Which brings us to molnupiravir, which is if you cannot use Paxlovid or the monoclonal antibody infusion, you can use molnupiravir. And the reason why we put it down the pecking order is because some studies have shown that it's only effective at around 30% or slightly more to prevent severe disease, whereas both the Paxlovid and the monoclonal antibody are around 90% risk reduction. Um, I have two follow-up questions. When you say that you should stop a statin when you're giving Paxlovid, is it any dose of statin or just the atorvastatin 80 milligrams? I would say anything that's like high dose, you should definitely stop. So your atorvastatin or your rosuvastatin, I would stop those because okay. it just boosts it to the point that it may cause like damage. Okay. But the lower, probably not, but some doctors just to be safe, just hold it because it's Excellent. only for five days. 
Another question I had, you brought up the anticoagulation. Are you talking about warfarin or any anticoagulation? No, we actually don't stop the anticoagulation. Great follow-up question. We don't use the Paxlovid in that case because we do not want to over-coagulate those patients because someone's taking, for example, the Eliquis or Pradaxa or any of those new anticoagulants, you don't know how much the Ritalavir is going to boost the effect of the anticoagulant, so you don't want to have someone who is bleeding. So the best thing is to not use Paxlovid in that patient population. Thank you. My next question is related to testing. Throughout the pandemic, we had two testing options available. One was PCR and one is antigen testing. Could you clarify what's the difference between the two and what are pros and cons of each of them? Yeah, great, great point. So both are direct viral testing, so which differs them from serologic testing, which is an indirect method of testing. So that's the first thing I'll say. With that being said, that's the only similarity. Now, the difference is the PCR or nuclear acid amplification testing is a lot more sensitive than the antigen testing. So if you're really looking for COVID in someone with symptoms and they have an antigen test because it's more rapid, it's more widely available, then if that's negative, that does not rule out COVID. You still need to get a PCR. On the flip side, if someone recently had COVID within the last 90 days and then they get exposed again, then the best test to use would be an antigen because the PCR may stay positive for 90 days from having had COVID. Thank you so much. My next question is about definition of COVID. I know we've seen mild, moderate, severe and critical cases of COVID-19. From resident standpoint, I think mostly we see inpatient cases, so we are biased towards more severe presentations. But I was hoping to ask you for some more details on those definitions specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So one more category is asymptomatic, no symptoms. Hard to find out. Most people will be tired if you ask them. Then you have mild disease where people have just mild symptoms, fever, cough, sore throat, fatigue. But the key here is uh, they have a normal chest x-ray and they have like normal latusat. And you move on to moderate disease. They have like what we talked about, but now they have some abnormality on the chest x-ray and their latusat remains, however, over 94% on repair. If you move on to severe disease, those patients will have what we just talked about, but this time they have chest x-ray or chest imaging abnormalities covering about 50% of their lung. And they may also be tachypneic with a respiratory rate over 30, and uh, they will be hypoxic. And then lastly is critical disease, where they have the severe disease, but this time they either intubated, they're in shock, or they have some kind of organ failure. Thank you for going over that. That helps a lot. My next question is about telehealth versus in-person visits. As the pandemic evolved, a lot of us got used to seeing patients either virtually with video visits or with televisits. When do we know when is it not safe enough and when patient needs to come in for in-person evaluation? A great question. So with the infection control risk, if someone has mild disease, it's better that you do a virtual, only you don't want to be exposing other people in the clinic. And also, it's more convenient for them. And actually, we have a full clinic where it's all virtual. On the flip side, if someone is experiencing shortness of breath or they start to not feel well, it might be a good time for an in-person visit. And sometimes that might be even preferable at a local urgent care or ER if they really feel short of breath or hypoxic. That makes sense. Thank you so much. All right. Next, I have a silly question for you, uh, but I have to ask. 
What is the current available evidence for the roles of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin in the treatment of COVID-19? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So hydroxychloroquine, we've experienced that very early on in the pandemic. There was a time when we were using that a lot, and sometimes it was with azithromycin, if you go back to early 2020. But quickly, we realized that there was no additional benefit to it, but patients were getting the risk of having the arrhythmias. So that's why this was falling out of favor. For ivermectin, there were two large randomized trials that showed no benefit with using ivermectin, and that is to not be used. And in fact, it's one of the very rare occasions where a drug manufacturer have come out publicly to say, please do not use my medication for this purpose. That's very interesting. I remember that when we were in the ICU covering for the first few months of pandemic, right before round started, we used to start out by writing the QTC on the doors of every patient's room to make sure that we're not over-medicating with both hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin because both of those medications are known to cause QTC prolongation. It's just an interesting historical fact, and it just goes to show how far we've come and how much more do we know now. Yeah, and to add to that from a science point, science is always evolving. We were also using a ton of convalescent plasma at the time, which also has been shown to add no additional benefits. So thank you for that. My last question for you before we wrap things up is from the infectious disease standpoint as a specialist, we've had a lot of patients refuse vaccination and it's been the only true prevention available. How would you recommend that residents approach that conversation in their clinics? Yeah, that's a very great question. We have a few minutes left, but uh, I'll try to be quick. I think the idea is to you go into that conversation with the idea that I'm not there to change the person's mind. You go in there with an open mind to listen, and I put, put attention on that. You listen to the person and meet them where they are. They may have had a friend who had a very bad experience with the vaccine. They may be reading stuff from misinformation websites. They may not have the whole information. So you listen why they're opposed to it, and then you try to meet them where they are and provide the true information regarding the COVID-19 vaccines. And then you let them make their decision. And sometimes this may be over the course of several visits, but that's okay. I believe I'm all out of questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Anthony, for walking us through the COVID-19 outpatient management. This is something that residents will really learn a lot from. So we really appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we will see you in our next episode.